14 minutes it is after 8 p.m. It's our Thought Leader Thursday segment here on Metro FM Talk. And uh, really excited for the conversation I'm about to have with our Thought Leader on this Thursday. Panasha Chigumadze is my guest. And uh, she's a doctoral candidate uh, at uh, Harvard University's Department of African and African American Studies. And uh, doing some work here on uh, drawing, uh, I guess, uh, historic parallels, uh, if I can say that, between... Uh, very different spaces, the American South, uh, South Africa, Rhodesia, uh, what is now Zimbabwe. And uh, I say uh, very sort of different spaces uh, because I guess um, fundamentally there is a lot that um, is the same about these experiences and uh, that uh, certainly weave together the story uh, of uh, African people uh, both here on the continent and elsewhere in the diaspora. And uh, she's also the author of a book published in 2018, These Bones Will Rise, a historical memoir reflecting on the military ouster of Robert Mugabe uh, through the spirit of anti-colonial heroine Mbuyane Handa and her grandmother Mbuya Chigumadzi. And uh, this work was shortlisted for the 2019 Alan Payton Prize for Nonfiction. Panasha joins me now on the line. Panasha, good evening to you and welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Aya. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for coming through. You know, a lot of people won't know this, but, um, you know, Panasha, you used to be my boss in a way, right? Um, you know, when we really? used to... Yeah, Vanguard magazine. Um, yeah, so Panasha was the editor and, and I used to uh, scribble from time to time for, for that particular platform. And, yeah, so now I was editor of Vanguard magazine. It was a really fantastic time um, with a space for primarily black women coming of age in post-apartheid South Africa. And it was really fantastic having you um, as one of our contributors thinking about issues around gender and politics and sort of the disillusionment of this post-apartheid era of ours. So, yes, I do remember when I was your boss. Yes, yes, yes. And (laughs) And I was seeing in our our DMs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, I mean, look, uh, you know, the work continues, uh, Panasha. And, uh, you know, I think it's been great to see some of the work that you've been able to put together and... um, you know, the uh, very unique perspective and vantage point from which you've written that. Um, and uh, I want us maybe to, I guess, you know, kick things off just with a bit of an autobiographical sketch uh, of who Panasha is, you know, just your background and your own influences. Uh, and we'll certainly deal with some of the work and the issues that the work throws up uh, thereafter. Mm-hmm. Well, I was born in Zimbabwe uh, in the coast. The land reform had happened. And so there were a lot of questions, you know, all of a sudden I'm being called a gurigiri, all kinds of different things. And now being part of or, or growing up close to the Limbopo River, you get to really think about over time sort of the histories that have brought us across and beyond these colonial borders. So mm. growing up, going to places like Mapungugwe, going to Great Zimbabwe across the river. And if you go into that history, thinking of this water and citizens of people who live around or the, the area around the Limpopo River, you really begin to understand that we are one people, mm. one people. Um, but in order to understand many of the tensions, um, particularly again growing up in the area of so, a lot of the so-called you know, Afrophobic or xenophobic violence, um, and in order to make sense of everything happening, you know, whether it was in what is now Zimbabwe or in South Africa, history has always been the thing that has helped to ground me and make sense of the space that I've grown up in. And particularly as I go back to this idea of being a so-called born free, you know, um, as we mentioned, by the time, you know, I was the so-called boss um, working with Vanguard magazine, Mm. it was us as young black people trying to think through what are the discontents of this country 
um, of this so-called miracle that clearly is not a, a, a miracle. It's not working, particularly for black people and us, the children, who were the, the born threes and the ones who were supposed to have inherited this miracle. Um, and I think the time that I grew up, I always remember, well, I don't remember at that time, but I look back at the fact that there were all those posters, you know, of Dada Madiba, mm. and it said, A Better Life for All. Um, and then it became my generation, which rejected many of those kinds of promises around reconciliation and the idea being that we were born free of history. And by the time this road must fall, we're saying, no, history is incredibly important. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say that in my home, uh, my parents were the first historians that I knew. They were always very um, invested in giving us a rootedness and a sense of who we are, where sure, we come from. Sure. So. You know, I spent a lot of time on the road as a child. Um, you know, and I, I, we were just talking about music, and I feel so sad about the fact that it's shut down because my father used to always buy those three for nine, those nine, I think it was Nice Price or whatever special building. Yeah, yeah, I have. remember. Yeah, I listened to the music. The cassette ones. Pardon? Yeah, yeah. The cassette ones. Yeah, well, not the cassette. They had this CD bin, three for 99 Oh, rand. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, <laughs> three for sure. 99 rand. And so you get to listen to all the music that they grew up listening mm. to. When mm. they were younger. Sure. Panasha, um, and so that Panasha, would be, yes. Tell you what, let's do this. I want us mm-hmm. to uh, take a brief, uh, we need to take a quick spot break. But when we come back, we'll continue on that vein. And I also want you to unpack for us what you mean when you, you know, when we delve into the world of race and you suggest that a lot of, I guess, the relational mm-hmm. conflicts of whiteness and uh, other nationalisms are resolved on the bodies mm-hmm. of black people. Mm-hmm. Twenty-four minutes it is after eight p.m. We're in conversation with uh, Panasha Chigumadzi, and uh, we uh, are talking to her as our thought leader on this Thursday, uh, grappling uh, with the influences that influence her work and uh, making sense of that work, and uh, I guess what what praxis it can inspire, what uh, action and reflection it can inspire uh, to uh, really uh, take forward. Uh, many of the things that we agitate and call for in this particular country. And uh, Panasha, I want us just maybe as we complete that biographical sketch to talk briefly about, you know, your own early interactions with, uh, you know, what many people would call critical race theory uh, in being able to explain some of the history that you already by that time would have had some curiosity in. Um, I mean, how did that come to be? Uh, And more importantly, I guess, uh, you know, that's become a critical part of, you know, uh, a considerable amount of the work that you do and what you dedicate your intellectual energies to. Right. So, you know, you don't need critical race theory or to go to university to understand what we go through in post-apartheid South Africa. You know, Bob Marley says he who feels it knows it. And Mm. if you listen to many of our languages, you will know um, that people are being dispossessed and have been dispossessed for a very long time. So, if you listen to the fact that in uh, our African languages across across Southern Africa, when you speak about Ubuntu or Munu, Wunu, you know, Ubuntu as we know it, you know that um, historically we will not refer to other Lungu or white people as people. And what I mean by that is to say that, you know, in Shona, if you want to say to someone, be a person, it's about a, 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 a philosophy of ethical personhood. So every day you must strive towards personhood. And if you fail to uphold the humanity of somebody else, you are not a person. And uh, Denise Gladwell writes about this. And we know this in all of our languages, but we do not refer to Arabians as people, right? Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. of the fact that there is a historical analysis about the fact that 
not from a racial perspective, but rather from a historical analysis, they have failed to treat us with humanity or uphold our personhood. Uh, so therefore, it's difficult to see humanity of in them. race in our culture. No, so right. Uh, yeah, so yeah. just to say that I don't believe that you need to go to university to sure, know what sure. we're talking about. It's just about paying attention to our history and paying attention to our mm. people and being honest. Mm. Because there's a lot of dishonesty in academia, as we're seeing now with this Habib issue and the many mm. people defending him through academia. Let's, let's make sense of that. Um, because I think, you know, there's, I mean, for me, two layers to this question. There's, there's um, mm-hmm. you know, our own contemporary reflections as a generation, um, influenced heavily by... Mm-hmm you know, the ideas of black consciousness and the, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, embedded notion of black solidarity and black unity, um, as opposed Mm -hmm. to, you know, um, you know, stratifying people as Bantu, you are colored, you are this, you are that, you are native, you are Indian. Uh, And yet, even within that edifice, there's always been cracks, Um, you know, cracks that predate the 1970s black consciousness moment and even, you know, Mm -hmm. the... Uh, I guess, uh, 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 solidarity between the ANC and the Indian Congress in the 50s. Uh, we've always had to grapple with this issue. But I think uh, a very good starting point in understanding the Habib moment is to go back to Gandhi, uh, you suggest. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so I've just recently written an essay called Who's Afraid of Race, um, which is a long review of a book that argues that uh, we should use caste as a way to think about race. Um, and using the historic injustices against Dalit people in India as a way to understand what has happened to black people. Um, and this is on Boston Review, so if you Google that, that's there. But the key argument here made by a number of people um, is to say that, and including myself, is to say that we have to grapple with the question of anti-blackness. And in order to do this, we have to go back all the way to the slave trade, all the way back to 1492 when the first Africans were taken off, and Africans in particular... Black people in particular were marked off as enslavable, separate from the rest of humanity, Mm. such that there's a particular kind of uh, hierarchy that not just white people are invested in, but a whole range or a whole swath of humanity is invested in this anti-blackness and that derives out of this enslavability of black people. And unfortunately, in South African historiography, what often happens is that we distance ourselves from the slave trade and we, we begin to sort of do history as if colonization is separate process, as you know, many people have spoken about, um, is the fact that slavery is the first coming, the second coming is, is, is colonization, mm. apartheid, and all the neo, uh, you know, the post-apartheid, apartheid, all of those things are important. And I mentioned the fact that, for example, uh, slavery is important and the instability of black people becomes important. When you look at the era of the minerals revolution, i.e. when all the gold and the diamonds were found in the 1800s in South Africa, what they did in those compounds, they used the methods that they used in Brazil because black people were insavable. They used slave mining compounds as a way to impound black people um, in order to extract profits. And importantly, there was actually slavery in South Africa right from the 1600s right up until the 1900s. And the point being that by the time the era of or we get the era of your Gandhis, they are speaking to the fact that, or they are mobilizing the fact that there is an underlying anti-blackness. Mm. So the organizing logic is that at least you're not black. Mm. So even when you know, indenture happens in Southern Africa and actually really across the British Empire in the era after slavery, after the embodiments, uh, rather after the implantation um, of black people in the British and French Empire. So they have mm-hmm. to then replace this slave labor or black slave labor 
with indentured labor from um, you know, Indian uh, or India and China and places in South Asia. And so in part of this, this new tension is to say, how are they navigating the fact that they have been racialized or they're being oppressed? Mm. Is to then to say, okay, we're going to mobilize against the fact that they're these black people. And that's why Gandhi, one of the first things he does when he comes to, 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 to Durban at that time as part of sort of, he was a, a passenger class Indian. There were those indentured class Indians. He says, we don't want to be part or to use the indignity of using the same entrance as the natives, or rather the K-word, right? Mm. So this then becomes an entire pattern um, within a, a conservative tradition of Indian diasporic uh, politics. And many people are always offended by being put into the label of you know, mm. the N-word or black, because blackness sure. means that you cannot claim right to citizenship because when we talk about enslavability it's about the the um without having claim to sovereignty to bodily autonomy without claim to territory those mm. are many of the things that we're still struggling with even in the so-called post-apartheid era um in the in the apartheid era is the lack of sovereignty bodily autonomy mm. or claim to even citizenship that's many of the things sure. that we're fighting against as black Panasha. people and Panasha. by the time you go to something like the United Nations yeah, or the yeah. League of Nations, there's the mandate system where there's a tier and at the bottom tier of countries, that's the black nation. Sure, sure. And now I want to emphasize that, yes, there are important moments of solidarity and that's why mm. we have the black consciousness movement um, across all the places where you had British, the British Empire and they have political blackness. However, what we're finding in the post-apartheid era is that there's something about this residual anti-blackness mm. that means that we are not being honest about what are our relative positioning. So if we want to have solidarity, it's important to be able to be honest about why is it that black people cannot play or gain or have the same kind of gains in the mm. so-called post-apartheid era as those of us who are not uh, enslavable according to the era of modernity beginning with, with the transatlantic culture. Mm. But Panasha, I'm quite interested in that and I, and I certainly you know take that point. I think it's an important point that you're raising, which is around you know, the political and even intellectual integrity to hold a certain line in defense of a principled solidarity, not just a, a wavy, you know, amorphous solidarity that has no real basis. Uh, I certainly take that point. Right. But from a, a political perspective, um, and, and I guess from a perspective of dealing with, um, you know, white supremacy as a global project with all of its manifestations, um, often many people have said, you know, uh, we also run the risk of dabbling in the Olympics and, and laddering our oppression at the expense of building, I guess, you know, a some form of working tactical solidarity that can hit at the source of the power, which I guess is the global uh, white capitalist imperial system. This is very much true. It's important to be able to keep our eyes on the prize and to understand what ultimately enslaves us. And again, around the issues of capitalism, patriarchy, and a whole range of things mm. that are part of what you know, keeps us, you know, so we're going to have to talk about class, for example, we'll be disingenuous not to talk about those issues. However, if, for example, when I talk about anti-blackness, you can look at the fact that it is black people who uniquely being enslaved. We're talking about the Arab slave trade. We're talking about the Indian Ocean slave trade. We're also then looking at, in these so-called post-modern worlds, the fact that uh, there were a number of, you know, attacks of African students in India, for example. Mm. We're looking at things that the fact that in the middle of the global attack on um, China for COVID, the way in which they then consolidate their sense of themselves is to then blame it on Africans. Mm. And we know of China's record on, on the African continent. 
So we have to be honest about the fact that and the people, you know, who are the likes of Frank B. Wilderson, uh, people of the so-called Afro-Persian school of thought, who speak about the fact that, and, and this is my own words here, that anti-blackness and blackness, uh, black suffering sutures the world, i.e. It, it consolidates and coheres all nationalism. So even amongst us as black people, when we want to consolidate our nationalism and console ourselves, where do we then go and uh, and uh, export the violence to, to, other, to other black yeah, people? Yeah, 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 to other blacks. Right, and we can uh. talk about the fact that, and, and that's why I mentioned, when I came to South Africa, or my family came to South Africa, it was in the era of so-called black-on-black uh. violence. And we know what was the cause of that. We know uh. the Nationalist Party had been stoking those sure, tensions, sure. and we know that history. But we have to understand that in that yeah. era of trying to consolidate a so-called South African nationalism, mm. who becomes fair game? Eesh. And so we need to then begin to, inter- to interrogate in the post-apartheid era where black people, black South Africans in particular, remain non-citizens of this country. Mm. And we have to understand that citizenship in this country and really the world over has always been an anti-black sure, phenomenon. Sure, sure. But we know that whenever there is some sort of unresolvable tension, it goes onto the body of black people. Yeah, that yeah. is what we have to then interrogate. I mean, South Africa. Pardon? Yeah, no, no. I was just saying, Parash. I mean, no, no way is that more relevant than here in South Africa, where even the whole idea of the union of South Africa is built on the express exclusion of, you know, the the, the indigenous African population, uh, and so it, even the resolution exactly. of intra-racial conflicts within whiteness uh, are effectively happening with, uh, you know, the lives of African people as a bargaining chip. We've got about three more minutes, and, and, and there's something quite interesting, I guess, that drew me to the title of your PhD work, and I want us to talk about that mm-hmm. uh, just as we wrap up, because, um, you know, you draw some very interesting historical connections and geographical connections. Uh, so time and space, you know, American South, South Africa, Rhodesia, Zimbabwe at uh, different moments, um, and this idea of Israelites in, in I guess, you know, in, in all manner of different manifestations. It might be Mkijima and Bullhook, you know, in the early uh, early 20th century, or even the AME church, uh, which was certainly big in that part of the world as well, you know, in the novels of the world. Um, And and I find that quite interesting. I mean, even the whole idea that Dylan Roof drew a lot from the canon of the white supremacist project in Southern Africa. Um, And that's the guy who went in Charleston and really shot up at, uh, you know, the AME church. Um, Talk to me about those, I guess, connections between time and space um, and the role that, you know, um, I guess, you know, this organizing framework of white supremacy plays in just ordering the lives of black people in, in significant ways. So importantly, um, in the Sunday Times this week and last week, uh, and, and the previous Sunday, I had a two-part essay on Uru, Mama Charlotte McFreke, yes. specifically about her religious and spiritual um, activism rooted in what we call the Ethiopianist movement mm. of uh, black people across the Atlantic were fighting against white supremacy. Um, and that's where the AME Church becomes quite important mm. as an independent black institution that I would argue is after Marcus Garvey's uh, United Negro Improvement Association mm. is the most important transatlantic black institution that we have. And now I speak about the Dylan Roof issue, um, mm. you know, the, the Charleston Massacre of Mother Emanuel Church, um, and he spoke about Rhodesia and South Africa as his inspiration. And sure. you know that when Martin Luther King's assassin um, was intercepted in London on his way to Rhodesia, where thousands of white people and white men had been fighting on behalf of the Rhodesian from mm. across the world. This is to say that white supremacy is global and international and it has no borders. 
So we as black people need to understand this as well. We are caught up in our nationalism and in these national borders that exclude us anyway. So we need to be able to look beyond these borders and go back to these eras Mm. of transnational black solidarity beyond the nation state. This is why I'm interested in the ANU church, because very often, I think, you know, we all grew up in the Mm. era of, you know, the African Union, African Renaissance, state-level pan-Africanism or Mm. black internationalism. But we want to look beyond the nation state to think about how can we have solidarity with black people across the world. Yeah. And ironically, at a time when you had to take three weeks to get onto a slave and um, onto a steamship, black people seem to have a greater mm. global vision than we do right now sure. when we're increasingly xenophobic or rather Afrophobic in particular. Panasha, can, can I tell you something interesting about that just as we wrap up? Uh, because I think you make a very mm. important point about the AME church. In, in your piece about around sort of, uh, I guess, you know, naming race, you make mention of the 1932 Commission on White Poverty, uh, which was set up by mm-hmm, the Union mm-hmm. government. By the Carnegie Commission. Yes, yes the Carnegie yes, yes. Commission. Yeah, part, yeah. Part, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, now, a year before that, uh, well, actually just over 18 months before that, uh, a commission had sat called the Native Economic Commission, which went around mm-hmm. the entire country looking into the life of natives, African people in particular, uh, who were living mm-hmm. in you know, the urban periphery and in many of what were called the reserves at the time. And interestingly mm-hmm. enough, I mean, there's some, something coming through in, the, in some of the work that I'm doing. Interestingly enough, w- one of the only testimonies in the transcripts of that commission, uh, which predates the uh, Poor White Commission, uh, the only African females um, you know, to come through on that particular platform, one of very few, I must say, were actually women who came from the Universal Negro uh, uh, Improvement Association and the mm-hmm. AME Church, uh, who were effectively, you know, telling off the commission as well. So, so there's some really fascinating, I guess, you know, insights about the, that dominant role, uh, not only of that church, but even, I guess, the, the political sort of uh, nuances of Garveyism Garvey, at the time uh, and how they played mm-hmm. themselves out mm-hmm. uh, even just prior to the onset of apartheid. Um, and I guess that's why you make mention of that poor white commission. No, completely. And I think that's, and you know, my work has always been interested in the ties or the, the links between our spirituality mm. and our politics. And there's never been a separation, whether we're talking about Chimurenga in Zimbabwe and people like Mbuya Nehanda who fought and were military leaders and who are the spirit medium, or we're thinking about the African independent churches. Mm. I mean, we talk about things like black liberation theology and the black consciousness movement. That's been an incredibly important dimension. So then, of course, in this era, we have these um, prosperity churches, which have a very different kind of sense of our religion and spirituality, and is very much individualistic, neoliberal, um, miracles around individual wealth and advancement, as opposed to the spirituality that was about a collective Mm. vision of freedom and liberation in our lifetime, and as well, not just for our generation, but future generations. And I'm really excited to hear that we have, you know, the Ancestors Day, because that's really important Mm. um, for us to think about what liberation means as a total project. Awesome stuff. Panache, as always, a pleasure catching up with you, and uh, thank you very much for taking time out to speak to us. Wish you all of the best with that PhD. I'd love to read the work that comes out of it, but uh, thank you very much for taking time out to speak to us. Thank you so much, Aya. Awesome stuff. Uh, Panache Chigumadzi here on Metro FM Talk.